0: Thank you. to a better world. This is your host, Mitchell J. Rabin, and we're very glad you're joining us again today. Today I'm going to be speaking with retired Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson, who is the author of several books. He's also the former Chief of Staff to Secretary of State Colin Powell under the G.W. Bush administration. We're going to be speaking about something that I think weighs heavily on many people's minds, thinking people who really care about our world and care about the geopolitical uh, landscape that seems ever-changing now under this current Trump presidency. I kind of describe it as a bumper car policy. Uh, You just bump into whatever happens to be next it's reactionary, it's knee-jerk, and it does not seem to have a coordinated, orchestrated, thought-through perspective from which uh, a, um, a, an administration could act. So, as a result, I have invited on, as I said, Lawrence Wilkerson, who has been around the block, uh, wearing many hats for over 30 years in government. A few more words about our guest. Uh, Larry Wilkerson is also the distinguished visiting professor of government and public policy at the nation's oldest public university, the College of William and Mary in Williamsburg, Virginia, where he has taught for the past 15 years. Previously, while serving in the United States Army for 31 years, he also taught at the Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island and the Marine Corps War College in Quantico, Virginia. Positions he has held outside teaching include in the military, special assistant to General Colin Powell when the general was chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and, as mentioned in civilian life, the chief of staff to the To Powell when he served as United States Secretary of State. So, Larry Wilkerson, welcome to a better world. A pleasure to have you. (coughs) Very good. Uh, And thank you for coming on uh, of all days Martin Luther King Day, uh, which is its own honor. So, um, I would like to think that our wish to discuss a level of foreign policy that could possibly move toward peace with you on a day like today is um, is special. So uh, thank you for that as well. I'd like to uh, start off, Larry, with something that you've been discussing a lot on uh, mainstream media uh, regarding uh, Iran and what seems to be this present administration's policy toward it, its aggressive posture, what happened recently with Soleani. You've had some uh, very potent words to share about that. I have been listening to them, as well as some of the background of the United States government, military, with Soleani in particular over the course of the past few decades in respect to Afghanistan and etc. So, could you kick this off then?
1: First, let me Pick up on your remark about Dr.
0: King. Uh, how
1: ironic it is that in my state here, right now, Virginia, we have, uh, shall I say, gun enthusiasts, to include militia members and so forth, uh, converging yeah. on, indeed, now I guess in, our capital in Richmond, <laughs> and I'm sitting here praying that we don't have a real disaster on our hands before the day's over. Yes. Yeah. The only irony yeah. is that it's happened with Martin Luther King Day, a man who was murdered, uh, yes. assassinated.
0: Um, yes. In
1: regard to your. Very your true. Specific- Very true. We in hope for a best
0: down mean- there in Richmond.
1: Oh, thank you.
0: Thank you. I, yes.
1: I don't with Governor Northam trying to deal with it. Yes. Um, with respect to your question about Iran, I, I think we're seeing what is really the almost now complete collapse of a foreign policy approach, a security approach to Iran that was working. And I'm not a big fan of President Obama. After all, he started that disastrous conflict in Libya. Um, Mm -hmm. He's still pointing out to uh, all of Libya's entire population's uh, harm right now. Um, But I will say that he at least set in motion and had brought to fruition a policy that curbed the most dangerous aspect of Iran's posture, its nuclear weapons posture. Um, and at the same time, and we forget this, and Donald Trump never talks about it, he never has mentioned it in the entire time he's been in the White House, that policy also had as a, a sort of a second part of it that we would continue dialogue. And there was an mm-hmm. understanding Bill Burns had affected that understanding, as well as John Kerry and others, that we would go on and we would talk about other issues to include ballistic missiles, terrorism, other means of instability in the region, and so forth. Um, And we just cut that off. Uh, When Trump came in and summarily withdrew from the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the nuclear agreement with Iran, he terminated all talks. As far as I know, and as far as I can ask your take, we've not said a word either behind the scenes or in front of the scenes, to Iran since he pulled us out of the agreement. Now, Brian Hook and others might say otherwise, but that's my understanding of where it stands right now. So we went from a policy that had dealt with for some time into the future, well into the future, um, the most dangerous part of Iran's situation, its potential to develop nuclear weapons, as Kim Jong-il and Kim Jong-un did in North Korea. Mm -hmm. Uh, to a maximum pressure campaign, to use Pompeo's words, Secretary of State Pompeo's words, that has done nothing but produce maximum tension in the region and made it incredibly dangerous for tourists, for diplomats, for business people, and, of course, for U.S. soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines in the region. Um, Mm -hmm. That's a disaster, uh, as far as I'm concerned. We've gone from being reasonably successful— to being almost dramatically failing
0: in our policy with regard to Southwest Asia and in particular Iran. Yes, you know, as you're speaking, Larry, I'm just reflecting on the nature of war and how is it has it has changed historically, and we're dealing in a situation right now with the development of technology that uh, changes the game completely. In other words. Uh, We've never had what we could call cyber war. But today, as I understand, it's a significant part of the Pentagon budget and perspective on waging war. Uh, We've always had economic sanctions. You know, any government has had that as a tool in the toolbox. But I think it ought to be recognized, and I'd love to hear what you have to say about this, that economic sanctions can be absolutely as debilitating as actually dropping bombs. Here we have, in this case, uh, an Iranian economy, and its primary uh, focus of, of revenue, of course, is oil. And what we have done to it is nothing short of devastating. Could you comment on that and just the entire perspective since you've been in the military for so many decades on what the military thinks about that in general and what you think about it personally at this other more advanced point in your life when you you know, look back at some of the well, shall we say, I'll use the word recklessness for the moment, but you could redefine it of what happened, for instance, back somewhat during your watch of when Secretary of State Colin Powell at the time went to the United Nations Security Council and made what I personally consider a profound faux pas that led us deeper into an issue with Iraq and the Middle East from which we have actually never never uh, returned your comments um, yeah I,
1: as a military professional, I know as a citizen, I feel deeply profoundly these impacts, but
0: as a military
1: professional, I know that economic sanctions to the extent that we are now using them on Iran, and uh, arguably to the extent we used them on Iraq before which killed tens of thousands of Iraqi children, for example, uh, are acts of war. They very clearly, in what I would call the codified law of warfare, in the theory of warfare, and certainly in international law, are acts of war. So in essence, we declared war on Iran with the blanket sanctions that we have on them right now, and incidentally, therefore, have no real uh, repercussions to talk about When Iran takes action against us Because we declared the war So that, that's an esoteric Interpretation of it if you will But it is a legal mm-hmm. interpretation It's a
0: just interpretation yes. um, when it, I, know, a co- I would know if I would call it Esoteric I think it's more Covert and nobody Really wants to talk about what it really Is but you spelled no, it out It is actually Europe. an act of war they don't want
1: to consider it that way because then that makes them have to examine their own consciences. Look at Brian Hook the other day exactly. in his press conference three days ago. He's exulting over the fact that one in four Iranians under 25 is out of a job. He's exulting over 40% and headed higher inflation rates. He's exulting over the fact that Iran has gone from Billions of dollars of oil sales down to a minuscule amount of oil sales. He's exulting over, essentially, not the deprivation and the hurt to the IRGC, the Iranian military or whatever. They're doing quite yes. well, thank you, for making money off the sanctions. Yeah. He's exulting over the Iranian people. There's 80 million people in that country. This is, to yeah. me, unconscionable. As a military professional mm. with some code of honor and as a citizen, This is unconscionable. It's reprehensible, this kind of policy. You're seeing the article in The Economist magazine uh, two days ago, and I I agree with it 100%. We are sanctioning so many people on the face of this earth today that those people are beginning to take note. Their states are beginning to take note, and they're going to start, if they haven't already, balancing us by attempting to find mechanisms in the world whereby they can do business, routine business, without resorting to the dollar.
0: If mm-hmm. they
1: succeed in that, in a unified and expansive sort of way, we're going to find ourselves up the creek without a, a paddle in a chicken wire canoe. Because right yeah. now, the only fence we have of our $23 trillion of aggregate debt and the $500-plus plus billion of interest payments on that every year is mm-hmm. our military And, in fact, oil is denominated in dollars, and thus the dollar is the world's reserve and transactional currency. You take that away, you let other currencies get in there, like the Chinese renminbi or the euro or some other way of transacting business in the world fundamentally, and the United States' ability to handle its own debt will drop off a
0: cliff. Well, I'm very glad you're bringing this up, and thank you for those good points. Uh, it, Since you brought up Libya and since we're talking about Iran in large measure, it's been said, and I think that there is some substance behind this, and I'd love to hear what you have to say about both of these, that the reason that uh, the Obama and Hillary Clinton policy about Libya became so aggressive was because he was looking to set up the uh, Libyan, I believe it was the dinar for all of the African Union and wanted that to be the reserve currency instead of the U.S. dollar and they were looking also to set up their own boers as they were looking to do that in Tehran with their currency, and to negotiate oil and pay and be paid for oil in their own respective currency, and the United States went well, berserk. And, you know, we see what happened to Gaddafi. It had nothing to do with, apparently, that was one of the best organized governments in the entire world, where women were actually exalted they had a serious, real, equal place in society. Uh, families were given money when they had children. University was free. On and on and on. The money from oil revenues was shared among the people. So that, That's a whole other conversation, um, but what do you know about, if you were to say, follow the money trail, if some of what I'm saying matches with anything you understand? Follow the money trail is
1: always a pretty good
0: advice, piece of advice. Um, yes. Not only, not only
1: was what you were describing basically the case, that is to say it was a, a, a very wealth-sharing community and government, it also was a threat to other African leaders in places like Nigeria where leaders basically steal at least a half, if not more, of the money coming into the treasury of that state. Um, remember Sani Abacha, who, when his uh, mistress managed to get rid of him, had about $5 billion U.S. stored mm. away in Swiss bank accounts. He was, of course, at the mm. time the leader of Nigeria. So these leaders yeah. in Africa didn't like what Gaddafi was doing sharing the wealth, not stealing it I like see. they were, and, yes. and working with the African Union in ways you were just describing to create some kind of alternative to the dollar. His light, sweet, crude oil was highly coveted in the petroleum world, much better than, for example, Venezuela's heavy sulfur oil. So you had Britain, you had Italy and other countries who were salivating over the prospect of getting at Libya's light, sweet, crude. So don't think for a moment that the U.N. Security Council resolution and the reasons Hillary and others offered was the real reason we took out Gaddafi. or ensured a situation developed that he could yes. have taken out in. I mean, Hillary made some of the most impolitic remarks in human history when she said, we came, we saw, and he died. Those oh were, those God, were yes. nothing that should flow yes. from a U.S.
0: Strangely, that was a precursor to some of the words that come out of Trump and his hubris and pomposity when Soleani yes. was killed, for instance, and what you were just saying about uh, his sentiments about the Iranian people themselves that you were just quoting just a little while ago. Yeah,
1: and I, I would Curious, I so. would say one of the things I've discovered in my seminars and my students doing case studies and so forth and their own opinions in seminar is that there's not a whole lot of difference between the highest leadership in the Democratic Party and the highest leadership in the Republican Party.
0: The in latter may be mm-hmm.
1: And a, a little more in your face But uh, the Menendezes And the Schumer's and the Pelosi's Are just as well Connected with the oligarchs In this country on Wall Street And the military industrial complex And so forth as are any of the people In my party, the Republican Party So we yes. are a problem yes. in both
0: It's a very important point to make And I appreciate yeah. it Despite my um, own Leaning uh, I, I I don't lean in either of those directions, quite honestly, but that's besides the point. Your point needs to be made, because what we're looking at is something that Dennis Kucinich used to say all the time, is we're dealing with a corporatocracy. Ralph Nader says it all the time, and has been doing so for years, despite their political affiliation. And Nader has been all over the place, anyway. uh, You know, they're blowing the whistle on the fact that money and corporation power dominates Decision making in Washington, and it still does. And, and the funny thing, I'm—I I shouldn't say funny—the
1: ironic thing that I discover. I've been yeah. in all fifty states in the last decade. I've, I've been in Texas, Minnesota, California, Alaska, Hawaii. And I will tell you that I'm constantly astonished at the number of Americans. I hope it's not a majority, but the number of Americans who think that's okay, who think that as long mm. as they get there. Or they're 1%, or they're 3%, or even more so, uh, that they can pull down that arm on that slot machine or buy that lottery ticket that will put them in that group, however temporarily, it's okay for yeah. that group in this country to rob them of their civil rights, to rob them indeed of their prospects of getting ahead. As long as they yes. can pull that off from that slot machine or buy that lottery ticket and and hit the jackpot, which they don't realize the odds are a hundred million to one on, it's mm-hmm. okay with them. Yes, that. it's absolutely yes. okay that we have, for example, someone like Donald Trump in the Oval
0: Office. Yes, yes. Well, Larry, now you're making me really sad and depressed because you have traveled the country much more than I have in recent times, and even though I have been around, uh, I haven't been interviewing people like perhaps you have or spent time as you have. So what I'm hearing is an overall degradation and deterioration of education and more than anything of moral compass and an actual deep caring about the republic for which we stand You know, there is very little appreciation of the structure of our government, co-equal branches of government, a constitution, and that this supersedes any kind of political affiliation. And that's, of course, one of the things that I think is hurting all of us today in what we see going on in Congress in respect to the impeachment and the like. Uh, Your comments? Well, you're you're right on.
1: Um, I will point out that the last years of Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson, and John Adams, once they had reconciled, were reflected in their letters, uh, composed of great concern, deep concern, profound concern over where the great experiment was headed. And by that, of course, they meant the Constitution, the Republic, the Yes. The enterprise, they indeed had had much to do with starting. And they even wanted, at the end, they even wanted to establish a national university. And this is, this is very important to understand. They, they thought this national university should teach civic virtue because they thought oh. that would be what would disappear the fastest under predatory capitalism, under the, the lure of the buck, mm. under the lure of the power and so forth. That that would disappear first, and so we wanted a school to actually teach that. Now, that might seem a little bit utopian, but at the same time, it reflects what has happened, I think. We
0: lack civic virtue today. Oh, is that true? You know, I worked at Columbia Law School many moons ago when I was considering (laughs) pre-med. This is a long time ago, and I met a lot of law students. And I became painfully aware that the reason really at least 90% were going into law was to go into corporate law and to make a lot of money. There were far fewer people who were interested in doing any kind of uh, civil service, of helping the poor, of helping the uh, disenfranchised of society – Thankfully, there was a sprinkling of them, but I put together a whole program when I was working there, and I had a menial job there, but it also gave me some time to think and reflect, and I put together a civics class where kids in high school uh, not even college, but kids like maybe in the inner city who might not ever make it to university or college could learn about their rights, but not just about their rights, but sort of a la JFK, what can you do for your country instead of your country do for you, and learn exactly that civil virtue, that civic virtue, both, I should say, um, that could serve our country in a way that has just so become dilapidated. What do you, I know this is sort of off, off subject a little bit, but when you teach there, uh, your students at William & Mary, what do you, when you take the temperature of your students in respect to what we're discussing, what do you find? I find first
1: that they think
0: my generation,
1: and and I am right there to admit it to them, um, has failed. And the the main issue that they take this position on is the climate crisis. Um, They look at us, me, you know, whoever happens to be over 50, as the people who are responsible for not doing anything, Uh, as the people who brought about the kind of culture, the consumerism culture that we live in today, that is part of the problem of bringing about the climate crisis. Um, that's the number one thing, and, and it really yes. it worries.
0: It worries them
1: sense. because they yeah, they don't know that they're going to have, let, let alone as good a standard of living as we've enjoyed. They don't know if they're even going to have a standard of living at all if they're not going to be in a, a world inundated, for example. Um, and the second thing that bothers them is the irresponsibility and almost incomprehensibility of the people in Washington. And, of course, mm-hmm. that's what I'm, te- I'm teaching national security affairs in U.S. government. So it makes it a rather arduous road to walk down to try and convince them that there is some hope, that there is a way to change and that they are yeah. the instrument of that change. And it's incumbent upon mm. them to take a tremendous burden on their shoulders. I mean, just look at what they're they're gonna leave college. Don't even think about the debt, real debt they're gonna leave college with in most cases. They're also gonna leave college with a national aggregate debt of probably fifty or sixty thousand dollars on each one of their shoulders before they even enter the workplace. This is a heck of a legacy
0: for all of you
1: this this new generation.
0: Truly, truly. Well, thanks for sharing. I, 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 it makes perfect sense. I would like to think they would feel a bit more uplifted, but when you look around, uh, you know, you could ask yourself, why in the world, but on what basis could they feel uplifted, except for that Martin Luther King is being honored today, and I've been listening to his speeches all morning, and it's, they're riveting, and I so wish we had leaders like that today where we have, uh, I, I swear, Trump hasn't read the Constitution. I, I'm almost convinced I, I would put down a, a shining dollar on that one, you know. Uh, which do. is scary. And uh, yes, a lot that same line, actually, I would like to ask you this too, because you have an inside track in a way that, uh you do, uh, and that is you know the history of the United States relationship with iraq i i 'm sorry with iran uh, is is generally speaking little known, so people have i described uh, current foreign policy as bumper car you know policy. you just happen to bump into the guy next to you and you kick him you know, and then you run away and you know hope for the best you know that you don 't get chased but Uh, I I say that a little tongue-in-cheek, but uh, I am aware of the former iteration of BP going back to 1907 when they made a deal with the then Iranian government to basically extract their oil and the Iranians were virtually slaves in their own land helping to harvest the oil. And it was until Mositek, a democratically elected president, decided to nationalize their own oil reserves, which wreaked havoc with what maybe then, I'm forgetting the actual name of the company, maybe it was BP by then, or as I say, it's prior iteration, uh, was so steamed by this at the loss of that Iranian oil revenue, that they appealed to Churchill, they appealed to the British government and parliament all, all together, got nowhere, it was post-World war, War II, nobody had any appetite for going to bat for anybody, everybody was broken financially and their spirit, and that's when he, they appealed to the Dulleses. I don't have to go into detail about this, but in short, the democratically elected, Mossadegh was ousted by through the United States government slash CIA and installed was the Shah of Iran. So most people today, Larry, don't know that. And I don't think our president knows that. So here he is involved in his knee-jerk reactions to what's going on today without understanding the historicity of the situation. I'd love your comments. I think what you're
1: talking about is absolutely true. I would add also that I've been told that if you ask the average Iranian, he knows that history, she knows that history, day by day. You ask the average oh, American, and they don't know it at all. So that makes for a big contrast in terms of relations. But you all, you feel education. Cold. Yeah, you could go forward and cite some even more egregious examples than the 53 overthrow by the U.K. and the U.S. of Mossadegh. And that would be the brutal, as brutal as World War I was for Europe and the United States with regard to Mm -hmm. the actual war, the Iran-Iraq war for eight years from the end of the revolution in 1980, roughly, to 1988. We took both sides And I'll recite you a comment I had with the Navy Admiral at the time. This was the way Ronald Reagan and General Vesey, the chairman at the time, and uh, uh, all of the military basically looked at it. We didn't care if they fought until it was one Arab left and one Persian left, and we'd issue them dueling pistols. Mm -hmm. So this was brutal, in which we took Iran's side when we sold Hawk missiles and TOW missiles, the Iran-Contra affair, you'll recall. To Iran, through the Israelis, and we took Iraq's side when we sold the chemical precursors for the chemical weapons they used against the Iranians when the Iranians lost their human wave attacks. The Iranians never used chemical weapons back on the Iraqis, but the Iraqis used them extensively against the Iranians. This was a terrible war. And when, when the when the Ayatollah finally threw in the towel at the end and accepted the UN offer to Negotiate an end of the war He said, I drunk the hemlock I couldn't do otherwise Because I couldn't fight Iraq and the United States And what he meant was mm-hmm. Of course, through operations Earnest will and praying mantis The United States actually took The position of being An Iraqi ally We sank Iranian warships We destroyed their command and control platform Most Americans have zero memory of this In fact, last week I was talking with some educators And they told me they conducted a 5,000-person sample across the United States, all ages, all wealth groups and so forth, with a map as the only tool they used. They wanted to see how many Americans could find Iran on a map. Only only 30% could. Then they narrowed it down and showed them simply a map of Southwest Asia. So you eliminate, you know, three-quarters of the world. You just show them the region that Iran is located in. Still, 60 percent could not locate Iran. Another 60% could not locate Afghanistan. Now, we've been at war in Afghanistan for almost 20 years, and half of America or better can't locate it on a map. I dare say... If you ask the question, in many states in this country, is the United States at war in Afghanistan, you get a look of total surprise on your face. Where is that, they would say. How would I know, they would answer.
0: Um, we have less
1: than 1% of 330 million people fighting in our wars today, 20 years now. I have students in my seminars who have never lived in a country not at war. Think about mm-hmm. that for a minute. And yeah. less than 1% is fighting in these. It's unconscionable what we're doing. We're using the poorest people in this country, the least capable people to escape it in this country, to wage war, to bleed and die for the rest of us.
0: You're absolutely right. And the other side of that is that the people of color, the minorities, The military represents one of the only ways they can get an economic foothold in their lives. It's one of the only ways, sometimes the only way for them to get some kind of higher education. So look at that. You end up having an entire militarized culture called the United States of America, which is supposed to be the beacon of light for the world, and has been, and oddly, I have to say oddly, remains, but it's a totally relativistic kind of comment. It's because so much of the rest of the world, except for places like New Zealand, you know, the Scandinavian countries, there are a few other beacons, but they still don't have the je ne sais quoi. They don't have the power and the position and the economy of the robustness of the United States. So we are so much in, I call it an identity quagmire, Larry, and we don't know if we're putting our right foot first or our left. Um, no pun intended with that one. <laughs> but, uh, you know, where do we go from here? What, what do you prescribe, if you would, even in general terms, for us to do, let's say, go back to the question of Iran? Do you think that we ought to pick up on where we left off during the Obama administration, which is virtually impossible? But if you had your druthers, what would you be recommending to this to this administration? Well, the first thing I would
1: recommend is that we withdraw all our military forces from Southwest Asia, Africa, and the Middle East. Now, that sounds like an abrupt move. It sounds like a, uh, a decisive move. It certainly is that.
0: But it sounds like a
1: move that ultimately would not be in our interest. I say au contraire. For 50 years, we exercised a strategy that we called offshore balancing. We had carrier battle groups, marine amphibious groups, strike groups, and so forth that maintained freedom of the seas and were omnipresent in the northern Indian Ocean and the Sea of Oman. And those offshore assets, without putting a single solitary boot on the ground, could do things that were necessary to maintain our interests. Look at what Ronald Reagan did in 1986, for example, from the Mediterranean and from the U.K. He launched airstrikes that taught Gaddafi in Libya that he couldn't get away with killing American GIs in Germany with impunity.
0: Um,
1: that's offshore balancing. You do not put a single solitary U.S. soldier, sailor, airman, marine, or coast guardsman on the ground in a region like that, volatile, instable, dangerous, and so forth. All you do is put a red mm-hmm. bullseye on the neck and say, some terrorist or some other person come kill me. And then you have to do things like we've done lately, assassinate a leader in in another state's uh, structure, Soleimani. Uh, You have to do those kinds of things. You don't have to do those kinds of things if you aren't there 24-7. Then you have to ask the question, why are we there 24-7? This is a long story, but I'll condense it for you. At the end of the Cold War, the United States Army and the United States Air Force saw their share and expected that share to go even further to, 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 to return to the American people a peace dividend. H.W. Bush and then later Bill Clinton added to that. We cut the armed forces by 28%, 29%. The Army and the Air Force needed some way to justify their share of the budget after the Cold War ended, so they began to build up central uh, central command and Africa Command. They established Africa Command. So now we have the military in the largest laydown on the planet, not not against China, not against Russia, not against North Korea. No. It's in Southwest Asia and the Middle East. We have them in Kuwait. We have them in Israel. We have them in Saudi Arabia. We have them in Bahrain. We have them in Qatar. We have them all over the region. It's the best-kept secret in the military. And we're spending billions of dollars on that and to no purpose whatsoever other than to get some of them killed from time to time or badly wounded. So we need to get out. We can do what we need to do from the distance if we need to do it. And I would say that would be very sparingly. Let the people establish their own governments, live their own lives, take care of their own problems and so forth. We didn't have any problems during that entire period. Of Almost half a century Of offshore balancing With oil Now everybody says we have to be there because of the oil (laughs) We're self-sufficient In oil now And we didn't have a single Mm -hmm. problem To speak of when we were dependent On that oil Because oil Mm -hmm. has to be sold To be valuable to anyone It's absurd what we're doing Our strategy makes no I won't grace us by saying We have a strategy What we have Mm -hmm. The self licking ice cream cone that fuels billions of dollars to the oligarchs
0: that run this country. It's <sighs> not looking pretty, Larry. It's not looking pretty. And let's turn to thank you very much for that. That's very uh, insightful and uh, I, with aspects that I, I was not at all aware of when we look at Soliani, do you consider that act of aggression as unlawful? Certainly from a point of view of standard military protocol, is there not uh, rules of the game where as a government official, which he is, despite the language of being a terrorist and all of that, uh, he was a government official, high ranking at that, Is there a rule or law that prohibits that kind of preemptive activity?
1: Actually, there are two of them. There's an executive order that was published after the church committees disclosed the attempts by the CIA, for example, to assassinate Fidel Castro in the 70s. Um, There's an executive order that prohibits it. But let's examine that for a moment. President Obama violated that when he killed Milwaukee in Yemen with a drone. Yes. So it yes. wasn't Trump who broke that precedent. It was President Obama. And to have mm-hmm. his Justice Department in the, in the form of Eric Holder, his attorney general, come out and say that, quote, due process does not necessarily include legal process, unquote. I thought at the time, well, then what are you meaning it includes? A star chamber? Because that's really what he was saying. If the president decides to assassinate someone, even if it's a U.S. citizen, then it's okay. That's wrong. That's against the law. As far as Soleimani is concerned, it's against the law to do what we did, the international law. It's against domestic law because of the executive order. But Obama had already discarded that and set the precedent for it. So once you do that sort of thing, one of the things I've learned most uh, profoundly is that once you give a president power, that president and subsequent presidents will surrender it only if you uh, threaten them in a way like Trump's being yes. threatened right now through impeachment. Yes. And they will not surrender it. They hold on to it. They keep it. And unfortunately, as we were referring to earlier, you actually get a Democratic Congress sitting on its butt thinking that, wow, we can't take that power away from the president because in the future we might be president. And therefore mm-hmm. we want that I mean, just look at the surrender of the war power clearly specified in the Constitution as belonging to the Congress and not to mm-hmm. the executive. Look at how they surrender yeah. that to the executive.
0: Yes. Yes. yes, you're right, you're right, you're right. So it's, there, there's a rhetoric that surrounds the entire space that you know, we talk about, we don't talk about war so much anymore we talk about an armed conflict or, you know, there an, a, an insurgency. We have all of these clever rhetorical tricks, linguistic tricks to avoid the terms which lets Congress off the hook in their own eyes, not in the people's eyes. And in that way, they avoid, as you're suggesting here, uh, taking responsibility which is truly theirs. And they allow it obsequiously to go uh, to the president. And then, as you're saying, there's very little ability to fetch it back. Yeah, we're, we're, we're in a quagmire right now. We're in a quagmire, and with the disinformation, that is one of the reasons I'm so glad to have you on today. Uh, the disinformation is rampant. It's dangerous, this entire notion of fake news. Now, truly, it's not new, but to hear it uh, spoken of so blatantly, and for facts to be so uh, kind of disengaged or manipulated, it's it, it's making people crazy. I actually think it could be causing a level of psychosis in our nation, a nation that hardly needs any more emotional stress, you know.
1: You know, in that regard, I, I just finished reading a, a, a short book by an individual – who uh, has all the credentials for writing about this, psychoanalytical, psychologist, psychiatrist, you name it, he's got the credentials. And one of the things he cites in the books is, and and gives a lot of scholarly research data to to support his citations is that, for example, distress in America, especially amongst 40 and below, has tripled in the last decade, decade and a half. A lot of this is attributable, I think, to the lying that's going on that most Americans simply don't understand. Most Americans will say, okay, if someone's gathering all my personal data, I don't care because I haven't done anything wrong. That's not the way to look at it. They're gathering your personal data in order to influence your life or in the future to dig into that data Find that piece that will convict you or get you in real trouble and haul it out. Think of it this way, if you would. If you live your life, let's say for 40, 50 years, there's got to be some places in that life that you would not like revealed, perhaps even to your closest friends. The government now can do that. The government is all pervasive. If you use a computer, if you use a cell phone, if you in any way, fashion, or form communicate over the present technological means in the world, the government has that communication forever and ever and ever, and it is accessible through its metadata concept. It's accessible right down to the core of your existence, and it's going to get worse.
0: That is so true. So uh, Google and government are almost synonymous. Yes, yes. One of my
1: NSA colleagues said to me the other day, with all honesty, I think, Larry, your concept of privacy is passe. There is no such thing. And if you think anonymity and obscurity gives you some privacy, think again. They've got you, too. Mhm,
0: yeah well, yeah i you know I'm so you know afraid that that is completely true. uh there are defectors these days from Google who have had senior positions there, who have come out publicly to tell the story of what's going on. uh, we can go back to well lots of people. We can go back to Chelsea Manning. We can go back to Snowden. Uh, You know, there are uh, Binney. There are many instances of Um, high-level crimes that are committed against our Constitution, against our rule of law, and are done so expediently or economically, however you want to frame it. Uh, And these are crimes that don't go punished. I don't mean by the whistleblowers, by the way. They are the ones who are punished, as is often the case. Your comments?
1: No, I agree with you 100%. I had a student uh, a year ago who did a a directed independent study on the whistleblower legislation that exists and on how it's been used and um, on some suggestions as to how it should be used and so forth. Great paper. And when I finished reading that, I I wanted to beat my head against a brick wall. I mean the the blowing legislation that's in place is used more to ferret out whistleblowers and punish them than, yes. than it is to reward yes. them for pointing out malfeasance or even uh criminality in government. It's it's it's, exactly. it's astonishing what we're allowing to happen. Yes.
0: yes. It's really the founders
1: said I think it was seventeen seventy seven or so, they wrote their first comments on this in the Continental Congress. And they they essentially said in the language of the day all citizens have it incumbent upon them uh, to report any wrongdoing that they see to this Congress or to some authority. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's,
0: it's just a yes. matter of
1: common sense that you want people yes. who are being hurt by the malfeasance or who understand their patriotism is found in, in dissent more than in accent to be rewarded. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes. Yes. And so what – I mean – I don't want to go too far with this, but uh, I personally see that a lot of the problems that we have geopolitically um erupted during the bush Cheney, and I probably should say Cheney Bush administration. And uh, I see the what has happened with the Middle East, even though it has been treacherous for a long time, it took a decided categorical shifts from the invasion of the Iraq war actually i would even say the invasion of Afghanistan which i feel like i stand not alone but very much in the minority that as unjustified as the as the invasion of Iraq was so was the invasion of Afghanistan. In fact, I'd love to hear what you have to say about this. We never even had evidence that Osama bin Laden had anything to do with 9-11. It is, from a a legal point of view, a complete supposition. And even if we knew something, let's even imagine for a moment that we knew that he had something to do with it. Since when do you Attack an entire country, declare war on an entire nation to find one guy who's in one cave. I never heard of anything. It's so preposterous to me. I don't, I don't know quite how to organize those thoughts in my mind, and I haven't for the last eighteen plus years. What are your thoughts? Well, well I, am I, I missing something? Yeah,
1: I, I teach the national security decision-making process, and I teach it essentially from 1947 to the present, from Harry yeah. Truman essentially all the way up to the present. And one of the things I can tell you about that process is that there are certain things that influence national security decision-making that one can do very little about. If one had the, suicidal courage, perhaps one could, but uh, they wouldn't last very long. <laughs> so when, you, yeah. when you come when you come to 2001 and you come to what was what was perpetrated on 9/11 if you believe that and I think there was enough evidence around George W Bush and Richard Cheney, Colin Powell and Donald Rumsfeld and others to support that they did believe this if if you think that you have been responsible for that many deaths on US soil and you're feeling the guilt that goes along with that, and and this might even be more impactful, you're feeling the responsibility for that failure, then your tendency in response is to weigh in for the war machine, to get the war machine going. One, it gives you a lot more power as the chief executive, And two, it makes the bulk of the American people – indeed, look at Donald Trump and how he's surviving today. It makes the bulk of the American people think you're doing something, think you're doing something on their behalf. So though some of us argued at that time that the war instrument was not the proper instrument to turn to, that we had a history, a half-century of history of using law enforcement, the first World Trade Center bombers, for example – the al-Qaeda element Mm -hmm. that struck the USS Cole in Yemen in 2000. We use the Mm -hmm. law enforcement instrument to go after them, but that's not a very persuasive argument when you've got those ruins smoking in New York and you've got a president feeling incredibly guilty because it happened on his watch, wishing to regain some political standing, and therefore he goes to his press conference and says this was not an act of terrorism, This was an act of war.
0: And when we heard
1: him say that at the State Department, we knew we had our orders. We knew that reason was not going to prevail, that traditional domestic politics was going to prevail. And it did.
0: Yes, yes. This is uh, a serious fault in the system. I I hear exactly what you're saying, and it it still doesn't uh, clear up the tears in my eyes that American lives, other lives have to be lost because of a political decision. Not, or you made a fine distinction between a political decision and traditional policy and rational thinking. And there is a profound difference unfortunately between these and you know it better than many because you've been on the literally the inside of the national decision national security decision making uh process so I, unfortunately we're out of time larry but i so enjoyed and appreciate all of your input here i would you be willing to come on again and uh pick up where we left off sure yeah just let me know that would be wonderful thank you again i uh really am enlightened by a lot of what it is you had to share and I I find you to be particularly interesting in the larger picture because what you've gone through uh, you are uh, kind of an example and that's something we love to exemplify on A Better World. Uh, Someone who has made certain choices has taken the time to step back and look at those choices and decisions, and then moved on courageously to own up to certain decisions and um, steer your life in a a bit of a different direction. And uh, I I think that kind of courage needs to be highlighted in our society, and uh, so I want to thank you for that as well, in terms of your own personal and professional history. So, uh, you're now bringing a perspective on national and international security uh, and foreign policy policy uh, forward that I feel like we can all get much benefit from. So thank you well, thank for you your for good work. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Absolutely. We'll talk again soon. Thanks again. Thank you. Bye-bye. Sure. Bye-bye now. Retired Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson, who spent this time with me today discussing, uh, these ins and outs of politics, foreign policy, decision-making at the highest levels, and uh, the lack of historical understanding is another theme that came out resoundingly in today's dialogue, and the need for a better education, far beyond the cell phone and social media, but a real education. It happened that just today on uh, WNYC Brian Lehrer was speaking with a woman who has been a journalist from the New York Times, I believe it was, who has done a study of U.S. history textbooks across the country and wrote it up in an article in the Times who said that between states like Texas and California, there is a profound difference in what matters are covered and in what ways they are covered through what lens the history books are being written. What's included, what is not. What is judged terrible, what is not. And this, again, brings it back down to the state level um, in some ways, unfortunately, for what is considered U.S. history and the inclusion or exclusion of people of color, of women, etc. It's an old story. It's not a new one, but in light of my dialogue today with Larry Wilkerson, I felt that I wanted to mention that because it just shows how vitally important it is for people to wake up and I so appreciated his reference to civic virtue and uh, I would like to say also civic studies and civic obligation. Uh, I think that that is sorely lacking, and um, we need to really address this aspect of our society because it relates to everything, yes, including including global warming, which is a subject, of course, we deal with on this this show a lot. So I want to thank all of you for tuning in today. This is Mitchell J. Rabin for A Better World. Please know we have a series of different services. uh, You can find on our website, www.abetterworld.tv Sign up for our newsletter, as well as visit www.mitchellraben.com M-I-T-C-H-E-L-L-R-A-B-I-N.com I want to really telling you how much I appreciate your tuning in. Please share this with your friends and family and colleagues so they can get the benefit of in today's show, uh, Colonel Retired uh, Larry Wilkinson's good words and incredible background to share with us all. So thank you again, and I look forward to seeing you all next week. <laughs>